please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 73. If you're using a few Bibles, Psalm 73 can be found on page 485. The book of Psalms is a collection of poetic songs used by the ancient Israelites. The Psalms are famous for the way that they uh, resonate with us because of the high level of imagery and emotional content in the Psalms. In the Psalms, we get to see God's people crying out to him, struggling with him, resting in him, rejoicing in him, praising him, and lamenting to him. When I was working on this sermon, I told a new friend in California that the sermon text was Psalm 73. He responded, that's my favorite psalm. It was my wife's favorite psalm before she died of cancer, and we put it on her tombstone, and it's become my favorite psalm too. And he just started quoting the psalm to me with a twinkle in his eye and joy on his face. How can someone have that kind of joy uh, with that kind of suffering? My prayer this morning is that we can see how Psalm 73 can teach us to have that kind of joy in suffering, joy in God. Psalm 73 is one of those psalms that seems to be so easy to apply because it deals with things that are all around us, sin and suffering. Because we live in a fallen world where everything is affected by the curse, we all experience sin and suffering in our lives. Psalm 73 gives us comfort in the midst of sin and suffering and orients us towards the goodness of God and the glory that will be revealed. What we'll see in Psalm 73 is that there's a movement in this psalm where the psalmist starts out in intention. He's observing the pain and expressing um, tension over two things that he sees. He sees the apparent injustice that the wicked are prospering. And he also sees his own suffering, even though he's been righteous. So what he sees then builds up to this tension within him. And the tension ultimately is resolved when he comes into God's presence and God gives him an, a renewed comfort and commitment to him. To summarize the message of Psalm 73 in a single sentence, it would be this. In times of tension, turn to God and trust him. In times of tension, turn to God and trust him. We'll study Psalm 73 in three points. Our tension, our turning, and our trusting. Let's turn now and consider our first point, our tension. Follow along as I read Psalm 73, verses 1 through 12. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped... My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. So look back to verse 1. It says, truly God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. We could read this opening statement as the psalmist expressing his steadfast belief. 
But perhaps it's better to see that the psalmist wants to be committed to that belief, but that belief uh, is under tension. He's not convinced. Maybe he's even asking the question, is God really good to Israel? Is God truly good to those who are pure in heart? And the second verse shows us the psalmist's personal struggle with this belief. His feet had almost stumbled and his steps had nearly slipped. He almost departed from the way of the righteous. And the reason for this was because he was envious of the arrogant when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. So what's, what's going on here is that the psalmist wants to believe that God is good to Israel, but he's doubting that because uh, he's, seeing, he's seeing all this blessing that's going towards the wicked. Um, and what's probably going on here is that maybe he's even doubting the promises of Psalm 1. So if you want to turn over a few pages to Psalm 1, uh, Psalm 1 functions like an introductory psalm to the whole book of Psalms. Uh, it sets out many of the themes that are carried out through the rest of the book of the Psalms. And one of those themes is the difference between the righteous and the wicked. And it lays out what is supposed to happen to each of them. What's supposed to happen to the righteous and what's supposed to happen to the wicked. So follow along as I read. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So Psalm 1 says that those who delight in the law of the Lord, the righteous, are supposed to be blessed. They're supposed to prosper in all that they do. In contrast to the way of the righteous, the wicked are supposed to perish. However, in Psalm 73, it appears as if the opposite is happening. It appears as if the wicked are disobeying God's law and they're being blessed for it. The righteous are supposed to flourish. They're, they're supposed to prosper, but God, God is prospering the wicked, apparently. And so it appears as if God is not remaining true to his promises in Psalm 1. So turning back to Psalm 73 then, the psalmist continues to describe the scene that he's seeing. Verses 4 and 5 provide the details of this prosperity of the wicked. Their living is painless and comfortable in verse 4. And the imagery of fatness there in verse 4 refers to ill-gotten gains. So, so they have ill-gotten gains, but, the, but it's going well for them. They're misusing God's blessings because they're, they're greedy or wicked. Uh, but even so, they seem to be accepted from mankind's general condition of suffering. They're not in trouble as other men. And verses 6 through 9 declare that not only are they prospering, they're arrogant about it. In verse 6, they, they flaunt their pride like a necklace, so they're displaying their pride visibly for all to see. And their violence is so obvious that it's as if it's their clothing. They're, they're literally clothed in violence. Verse 7 has their hearts and their eyes overflowing with their witness, wickedness. And in verse 8, uh, their speech is filled with malice 
and threats against their fellow human beings. One commentator says that verse 9 is a caricature of the arrogant talk of the wicked because they're pictured as some sort of extraordinary giant whose mouths reach from heaven to earth. And as if it's not enough to live with this prideful, oppressive violence, verses 10 through 12 describe the wicked as turning away the hearts of God's people. This probably means that some Israelites were actually convinced by their wicked they, by their wicked living. Like they were convinced or persuaded by this prosperity that the wicked had. So they turned away from God and towards the living of the wicked because they were convinced uh, that there was an alternative way to live in God's ways. So, that, so they didn't even find fault in the wicked. Right? His people found no fault in them. So they had essentially forsaken God and his law. God's people are called to, are, are to call good what God calls good and call evil what God calls evil. But by finding no fault in evil doing, the people were turning away from God and calling good what God calls evil. In verse 11, the wicked directly question God's knowledge and power. They say, can God really know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Does God really know what's going on with these wicked people? Maybe he's not even big enough to handle a few powerful, wicked people. And then in verse 12, we see a, a summary statement of verses 4 through 12. Behold, the wicked exist. And not only do they exist, but everything is going well for them. As one commentator says, their daily existence seems to affirm either that God is good to the wicked, or his existence, their existence affirms that God is irrelevant. So before we move on, let's ask ourselves, are we like the psalmist? Do we see these things? Do we see that the wicked exist? And what's even worse, everything is going well for them. Do we, do we feel that tension then? Is the psalmist's tension our tension? Verses 13 through 17 contain our next point, our turning. Follow along as I read verses 13 through 17. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. So the psalmist now makes a a, tr a transition. Verses 4 through 12 were focused outward on a description of the, of the wicked. Uh, but now he turns inward and begins to describe himself. As a result of beholding the wicked in verse 12, he's entertaining an alternative to living rightly. An alternative to being pure in heart, as verse 1 says. He says, keeping the law, keeping his heart and hands clean, has been useless and all in vain. So in verse 13, that all in vain uh, could also be translated nothing. So what we have then in verses 12 and 13 is this contrast where the wicked, because of their actions, all they do is increase. And the psalmist, in contrast to that, has nothing. Keeping the law has gained him nothing. And even more, he says in verse 14 that he is stricken and rebuked. 
he's suffering and suffering for his faith because his faith has cost him. So despite keeping his heart clean, the psalmist has not experienced the good from verse 1 that is supposed to follow from maintaining a pure heart. One commentator pointed out that the psalmist is seduced by a superior way, judged not by fidelity, faithfulness to God, or purity. The, the alternative that he's seduced by is judged by pragmatism. Clearly, the alternative way works. The alternative to living God's way, to having a pure heart, which is wickedness, is working for them. And so he's seduced by this. So do we ever feel this way? Do we ever feel seduced by what we see in the world? Are we ever seduced by an alternative to living God's way? Where we're, we, we want to live pragmatically instead of trusting God in what he's revealed in his word. So did the psalmist actually think these things? These things in verses 13 and 14. Did he actually think these things and throw in the towel and give up on God? And the answer is no, not if you look at verse 15. Verse 15 says, If I had spoken thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So verses 13 to 14 contain a, a tempting alternative to living God's way. Uh, but he never fully accepted or acted on that alternative. And why? What was it that kept the psalmist from accepting that conclusion and betraying God's people? He couldn't utter that conclusion. He couldn't accept that alternative because he had a prior commitment to God and his people, as seen in verse 15. For him to give up and actually have the conclusion of the wicked or the conclusion of those who were betraying God's people would have been betrayal. And so because of his prior commitment to be a faithful member of God's people, he rejected that alternative. He saw that faithfulness, he saw where unfaithfulness would lead. And he knew where it was heading, and so it was heading towards betrayal and forsaking God. So that's why he's so troubled, right? That's why he's so wearied, because he wants to go one way, but he sees where it ends up, and he doesn't want that in the end. And it's that tension that ultimately drove him into God's presence in verse 17. God's holy presence in verse 17, in the sanctuary of God, is the, the focal point of this psalm. The reality of God's holiness caused the psalmist to re-perceive this tempting alternative. So that's what's happening here in verse 12, or sorry, in verse 17. He's re-perceiving things as a result of God's holy presence. He sees everything differently. He was troubled. He was in tension until he turned to God and God's presence. And he experienced in God's presence uh, God's holiness, and that resulted in a total change in his perspective. And I think we need to stop here and ask again, are we like the psalmist? The psalmist's tension is our tension, isn't it? Do we wonder about the prosperity of the wicked? To put it in more modern terms, maybe we ask, why is it that some of God's people have debilitating health issues like cancer or fibromyalgia or rheumatoid arthritis? Why do God's people have those things and then sex traffickers and predatory lenders are the perfect picture of health? 
Or maybe we don't even put it in such stark terms as that. More likely, we aren't that tempted to be envious of the ultra-wicked. Maybe we're more tempted to be envious of those who, in our eyes, aren't that bad, even though they still reject Christ. So we might not be envious of the wealth of somebody like Jeffrey Epstein, but we are envious of that nice car rolling down 395 next to us, or the vacations our coworker takes. We might not struggle with being envious of the ultra-wicked, but boy, is it hard not to be envious of those around us who are mostly good, but still reject God. And that indicates the problem. Look back to verse 10. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. In Psalm 73, the writer is talking about people who, the people of God who turned and joined the wicked in their ways because they didn't find fault with the wicked. They didn't see the behavior of the wicked as all that bad. And so in essence, they joined the wicked in asking in verse 11, how could God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? So could this be us? Could it be that in viewing the prosperity of the wicked, we've envied them and began to emulate and adopt their lifestyles? Have we actually wondered with the psalmist whether it makes any difference to be a Christian? Have we believed what they believe, that it is really in vain to live for God, that it gives us nothing because the wicked prosper? Do we even find fault in the wicked? Have we drunk the cultural Kool-Aid of worldly prosperity and lost what it means to be distinctly Christian? Psalm 73 is highlighting attention to us. Why are the wicked prospering? And that tension can be a temptation to us to envy the wicked. And envy is a serious sin. It's serious enough to send people to hell. Jesus went to the cross to pay for the envy of his people. But envy isn't the only problem here. Envy isn't the end of the line. What envy led to in this psalm was forsaking God's people. What comes after envy is joining the wicked in their ways and living without reference or obedience to God. If you feel tension when you see the prosperity of the wicked, be like the psalmist and let that tension drive you to God's presence. Repent of your envy Turn away from envy and turn toward God through Jesus Christ. And we need to take seriously this warning of joining with the wicked and living without reference to God. The wicked love money, sex, comfort, and ultimately themselves. Have we started to emulate their lifestyle, their values, their goals, their methods, their foundations? Do we even find fault with the wicked? Do we think that God knows or cares? What do we love and what do we need to repent of? Do we need to repent of loving and pursuing the same things as the wicked? What are we pursuing? And before we move on, we should take seriously what's in verses 15 through 17 as a way of combating this capitulation. Remember what aided the psalmist in his struggle against temptation. He didn't want to betray God's people. His love for God's people and his reluctance to betray them kept him visiting the sanctuary, and it was God's presence that finally shook 
the psalmist from his stupid infatuation with sin and woke him up to what was really true. Brothers and sisters, we often talk about the ordinary means of grace in this church. The ordinary means are the word of God, prayer, fellowship of the saints, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. And these ordinary means may seem humdrum, but they work. They worked in the psalmist's life, and they work in our lives because God has committed himself to working through these things by his spirit to change us and to grow us and to help us fight temptation. So turn to God in tension. Turn to God in temptation. And the way we turn to God is the same way that the psalmist turned to God. Meet God through the means that he has ordained. Read his word, listen to his word preached, pray, pray with other believers. These things are not optional in the Christian life. It's not okay to live a solo life. Imagine if the psalmist didn't have his community or his commitment to God's people. Imagine if he didn't go into God's presence. Where would he have ended up? Pursue God through the ordinary means of grace because they're commanded and because if you don't, you could join the wicked in their sin and in their destiny. Going to the sanctuary allowed the psalmist to discern the end or the destiny of the wicked and to turn from tension to trusting God. So let's consider this now in our third point, our trusting. Follow along as I read Psalm 73, verses 18 to 28. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Remember in verse 17, uh, that that verse communicates that the psalmist re-perceived. So verses 18 through 20 contain some of the reversals in the psalmist's perception. In verses three, 1 through 3, uh, it was the psalmist's feet who had almost slipped. And then this is contrasted in verses 18 through 20, where the wicked are set by God in slippery places. He makes the wicked fall to ruin. Though they may not appear to have any pains until death or be stricken, they will be destroyed and swept away. Although God might be deferring his justice, that deferral will not last forever. God will rise, and when he rises, the transitory, phantom-like existence of the wicked will be exposed and brought to an end, as we read in verse 20. Verses 21 and 22 contain the, the psalmist's reaction uh, to his old perspective in light of his new perspective. 
in strong language, he compares himself to uh, a wounded person or an animal, and he expresses his senselessness in entertaining the way of the wicked. It is senseless to entertain emulating the wicked. These verses express regret over what the psalmist's temptation could have led to, severing his relationship with God. But they go also beyond simply seeing regret and express repentance. He sees how foolish his thinking was and how sinful his envy was. And so what happens is he repents. He began by seeing the arrogance of the wicked and calling them out for their sin. But God's holiness exposed his own sin to him that he was envious. Brothers and sisters, do you see what God's holiness does? The psalmist was so caught up with seeing how, the, how wicked these other people were that he couldn't even see that he himself was wicked. He was blind to the fact that he was envious of them and was himself sinning against God. But God's holiness exposed his sin. This is how sanctification works. God's holiness exposes sin. When the psalmist saw his sin, he realized just how foolish and wrong he was. And so, do we realize that? Do we realize how foolish and wrong our envy is? We need to be running to Jesus and repenting of our envy. We need to be constantly going into God's presence so that we can, uh, so that his holiness can expose our sin. And then verses 23 through 26 discuss, discuss the destination and the true prosperity of the righteous. And they contain another reversal from the psalmist's original perception. The nevertheless I that introduces this section uh, could also, in 23, could also be translated but I, which could be compared to the but I uh, in verse 2. The first but I, the psalmist was close to slipping, but in this next but I, he is being firmly held by his loving father. Although he's stricken and close to falling, the greater reality is that God has grasped him by the hand and is keeping him from slipping. Because the psalmist is guided with God's counsel, he will afterward be received into glory. So this afterward, in verse uh, 25, um, sorry, 24, is, is connected to the end or the afterward in verse 17. So though the righteous may suffer now, their end or their afterward is glory. And though the wicked may have glory now, their end or their afterward is destruction. And then verse 25 contains the next reversal of the psalm. Though the psalmist once envied the prosperity of the wicked, now in verse 25, he desires the one thing that he has and the one thing that he needs, God himself. His envy has been replaced by a holy desire for God. Indeed, from heaven to earth, the psalmist lacks nothing. This word portion has uh, connotations of land or inheritance. So God as portion as land inheritance for the righteous is contrasted to the slippery place of the wicked which leads to ruin the inheritance of the wicked is destruction whereas the inheritance of the righteous is God himself 
And then verses 27 and 28 summarize this dramatic change that has taken place in the psalmist's thinking and emotions. He began by questioning the truth of Psalm 1, questioning whether God does indeed have a goodness that he is faithful to his people. The reason for this questioning was the prosperity of the wicked. But the psalmist has seen that those who are far from God will perish. Those who are far from God, uh, that, that language of, of perishing uh, reaffirms Psalm 1. And so, as a warning to himself and others, the psalmist declares that those who are unfaithful to God, who go about prostituting themselves to other gods, to other things than God, will likewise be destroyed by God. The behold at, in verse 27 is parallel to the behold in verse 12. Right? Be, behold, these are the wicked, all they do is increase, was in verse 12. But now we have a behold, those who are far from you will perish. And so there's this, this radical shift because of what he saw in God's presence. One commentator said, autonomy is a harlotry that does not work. But that's only part of the shift in his thinking. Positively, the psalmist has now experienced a complete redefinition of good, a complete turning. The mention of good in verses 1 and 28 provides sort of the bookends of the psalm. The first time we read good in this psalm, in verse 1, or sorry, uh, yeah, in verse 1, um, there was this question of, is God good to Israel? But then it appeared as if God was good uh, through prosperity to the, in terms of worldly comfort um, and blessings to the wicked. But over the course of this psalm and the psalmist's new perception, he's seen that good doesn't mean material prosperity. Good now is, is defined as being near God. So instead of being defined as uh, prosperity, ease, and riches, being near God is now the psalmist's good. The experience of being stricken and troubled doesn't separate the believer from God. Good is redefined as being in God's presence. And as one translation put verse 28, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. What is your definition of good? We can see now the last reversal of the psalm. The author was tempted to proclaim the, what the wicked proclaim in verse 15. But in the end, in verse 28, he ends up proclaiming all of God's works. He started out in trouble and in doubt, and God moved him to praise and security. So I want us to take some time now to dwell on a very important theme laid out in verse 24. You guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me into glory. We saw before that the afterward of the righteous is contrasted to the end of the wicked. What this psalm is laying out is that there are two sequences for life. There's glory now and suffering later, or suffering now and glory later. The righteous have their suffering now and then eternal glory. The wicked have their glory now and then eternal suffering. These are the only two options laid out for us. Glory and then suffering, 
or suffering and then glory. The wicked have their glory now and will suffer for all eternity. But even though the righteous may suffer now, afterwards they will be received into God's glory. And I think if we're honest, we don't like those two categories. In our sinful pride, we come up with the bright idea of a third category. Glory now and then eternal glory. But that's not how God has designed it. The path for the psalmist was suffering and then glory. The psalmist knew that his suffering was temporary and that God's presence was his good while he endured suffering and that afterward he would be received into glory. Isn't that how Jesus would have prayed this psalm? Throughout the New Testament, we see Jesus, he's quoting the psalms and the apostles are treating the psalms as prophetic about Jesus. And Jesus himself in Luke 24 explained to his disciples that all that was written about him in the Psalms must be fulfilled. So we need to see the Psalms not just as the songs and prayers of the Old Testament people of God. We need to see them as the songs and prayers of Jesus. So think about how Jesus would have prayed Psalm 73. Christ saw the prosperity of the wicked. Instead of envying the wicked, he discerned their end. As he went to the cross for his people, he kept his eye on the one who held him by the hand. Literally everyone around him was, was prospering. Judas prospered when he sold Jesus for silver. Pilate prospered politically when he flogged Jesus and sent him to his death. The soldiers who flogged him, spit on him, mocked him, and nailed him to the cross were getting a paycheck. And all the while, Jesus was suffering while the wicked were prospering. And as he was stricken and rebuked, he did not revile in return. But when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He knew that just as suffering and then glory was the path for the psalmist, so suffering and then glory was his path as well. In the words of Psalm 73, 26, as Jesus felt his flesh and his heart literally failing on the cross, he knew that, Jesus, that God was his strength and his portion. Jesus believed, verse 23, that God was with him and held him by the hand, even when his hand was nailed to the cross. Unlike you and I, Jesus never envied the wicked. He never once doubted God's promises. He never said or thought anything that would have betrayed God or his people. The whole reason that he went to the cross was to redeem God's people. You and I have sinned. We've all been envious and angry. We've been the wicked in Psalm 73. We've joined the wicked in their way of life. We've sinned, and after sinning, we've minimized our sin, saying, how can God know? Is there really knowledge in the Most High? My sin is not that bad. Does God really care and will he really do anything about it? We've rebelled against God's law, and we've rebelled against God, hating him. Because we've known that except through repentance, what the psalm says is true. Our end is destruction. We've sought glory for ourselves, trying to run the equation the other way. We want glory now, instead of seeking God's glory. But the good news of the cross is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
He didn't betray God's people. He redeemed them. Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience. His whole life was suffering. But like the psalmist, he endured that suffering because the nearness of God is his good. For Christ, as he walked by faith and not by sight, the nearness of God was enough to give him peace in suffering as he waited in assured hope and worked toward accomplishing the full revelation of salvation and glory for his people. Jesus died to pay the price for our wickedness. Even though he was righteous, he took our place in the destruction that should have been ours. And three days after he died, God raised him from the dead. His sufferings were over because God vindicated his mission and his sufferings. And so Jesus entered into glory on that first day of the week so long ago. And the crazy thing about this is that in the gospel, Jesus invites us with him to share in his suffering and glory. He invites us to repent and believe in him, believing that he suffered the punishment that was due for our sin. Jesus, the righteous one, made the Lord God his refuge, and he invites us in him to do the same. He invites us to repent of our sin, forsaking it, and turning to him in faith. So friends, brothers, and sisters, I encourage you to repent of your sin. Turn away from your sin and turn to Jesus in faith. Believe that he lived, died, rose again, and ascended to glory for you. To bring you from your sin and your destruction to glory with God. Believe that Jesus can bring you to glory. And if you'd like to talk more about the gospel, about life with Jesus, please find me at the door. I'd love to talk to you more. So this psalm then isn't just a, a song prayed by the ancient people of God. It's not just a song prayed by Jesus either. This is our song because in Jesus we get to pray this psalm. This song is true of us in Jesus. Jesus is making us pure in heart. He keeps our feet from stumbling. In him we are always near God and he holds our hand and is bringing us to glory which is such a comfort in suffering, isn't it? If, Jesus, if God can hold Jesus' hand while it was nailed to the cross, then surely he can hold our hand when we are in our worst suffering. If Jesus could believe that God held his hand while it was nailed to the cross, then surely he can help you and I believe that God holds our hand through our worst trial. If God can carry Jesus through the deep, deep suffering that he experienced and then received him to glory, then surely he can carry us through our deep suffering and then receive us to glory. I pray that this psalm encourages you in your suffering, that the nearness of God is your good even when all earthly good seems to not go your way. I pray that this psalm encourages you who are having health problems. Your heart and your flesh may fail, but God is the strength of your heart and your portion forever. I pray that this psalm encourages those of you who are experiencing material suffering, whether you're struggling to make ends meet or you can't make any headway in your career, that you would pray with Jesus and the psalmist and remember that because you have God in heaven, there is nothing on earth that you desire besides him. Fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I pray this psalm encourages all of us 
to remember that the nearness of God is our good while we suffer and that our afterward is glory. Suffering and glory was the path for the psalmist. It was the path for Jesus, and it is the path for us. But that brings up a good point, doesn't it? So often, we don't like that path. We want our glory now. And one of the reasons this is so dangerous is because having glory now, instead of suffering, according to the psalm, leads to destruction. The idea that we can have our glory now is idolatry, and it needs to be repented of. The psalm warns us of idolizing glory now. Repent and run to Jesus. But there's something else that we'll miss out on if we want glory now instead of suffering. We won't know Jesus very well. Jesus, the ultimate human, suffered in his life on earth, and he invites us to share in his sufferings that we might know him better. Jesus suffered and was glorified. So as one person wrote, suffering and glory are a package deal that cannot be separated because they come from the same divine source. Jesus knew both. To have one without the other amounts to an incomplete knowledge of Jesus because that's not the life that he lived. That's not the life that he lived. If we want to know Jesus, then we need to know him in his glory and in his suffering. Isn't this what Paul says in Philippians 3.10? Paul says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Suffering is a means of knowing Jesus and becoming like him. Do not, do not settle for a life without suffering. Do not settle for a life where you don't know Jesus like you could. Do you want to know Jesus? Then suffer with him and for him so that you can know him and become like him in his death and know that if you do, one day you will join him in glory. So how does this idea of suffering and then glory change the way that we live? Well, first, it brings comfort as we face the suffering that is inevitable in this world, as we face the suffering that we experience. But I think more than that, uh, to identify with Jesus in his sufferings means that we would choose suffering now in order to be like Jesus. We need to choose suffering for Jesus' sake. I'm not saying go do foolish things so that you can suffer on purpose. I'm saying to choose to suffer for the way for, for Jesus' sake. So does that change the way that we serve others? I think so often we can serve other people only in ways that bring us glory or in ways that are convenient to us. But what if we knew that our glory was future and that that hope of future glory freed us up right now to suffer in order to love people? Would that free us up to suffer for Jesus? That means we'd suffer the loss of our time and our money and our energy and our resources, not expecting anything in return, not expecting glory, but only expecting to serve others. That's what Jesus did. And that's how we can image Christ and that's how we can know him. It's easy to do things even in church, right, that give us glory. But what about the things that don't? Serving in church isn't, or ser serving in the nursery isn't suffering, but it's not glory either, right? What about visiting homebound members? What about giving up your Saturday to help someone or giving up your whole evening to meet with someone who's discouraged? Let's think about our, our church covenant, how we've 
promise to live as a church. You can go ahead and open it up. So our, our church covenant is on the, the inside flap of the hymnals. And it, it, it's how we have agreed to live together as a church. And if you look um, at all these things, they, we have all these phrases about how we're going to live together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church. We're going to exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other. Uh, we're going to endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. We will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry and the expenses of the church and the relief of the poor and the spread of the gospel to all nations. And we, and we like our church covenant, but I think secretly, before all the periods at the end of the paragraphs, we want to add a little phrase. Only if it's convenient for me or only if it gives me glory. If you're like me so often, you only want to keep this covenant in ways that cost you nothing or at least get you glory now. What if we actually suffered to keep our church covenant? Or even further, what if the only way to keep our church covenant was through suffering? What would that do to how we live as a church? What if the goodness of God's presence and the sure hope of glory freed us up to not just do these things when convenient for us, but spurred us on to suffer in big ways and small for the sake of Christ so that we might bless others and glorify God and know Christ in his suffering? What would it look like if we suffered to keep our church covenant? We don't have to wonder that hard what that would look like because God has given so many people to this church who do suffer well to love the people in and around this church with Christ-like sacrificial love. But there's one person in particular who shows us what it looks like to suffer, to love those around us and love the way that Jesus loved. A few years ago, our family, a family in our church had an infant son who was hospitalized uh, for an extended period of time. And our dear sister, Angie Lamb, loved this family so well through that suffering. She suffered the loss of her time and her money and her comfort and her sleep and her energy in order to love those people. She chose to add stress to her own life in order to love them and make their lives less stressful. Angie suffered to love God's people. Doesn't that remind you of Jesus? Angie shows us more of what it looks like to love the way that Jesus loved. So next time you see Angie, thank her for being a suffering servant who loves us the way that Jesus loves. And it's not just the, the Christians in the present that, that points us to Jesus and, and how to love the way that he loves. Christians in the past can be a great encouragement as well. Uh, so I want us to conclude by thinking about the example of John Payton. John Payton was a missionary in the 1800s to an island chain in the South Pacific inhabited by cannibals. And he's perhaps most famous uh, for his reply to somebody who said to him, but John, the cannibals, you will be eaten by cannibals. And John Payton replied, Mr. Dixon, you're advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. 
I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. John Payton believed that his suffering was first and then glory. Frequently throughout his autobiography, he talks about how other missionaries and local believers were martyred for their faith. And I was struck by the way that he talked about their suffering, um, but even more so by, the, by how he described where they went after their suffering was over, after they died in service to Christ. So often he used the word glory. They're in glory now. He knew that glory came after suffering. When he was chased off the island, the natives stole all his property, burned his mission to the ground and his house, and tried to kill him. The wicked prospered, and he was suffering. He suffered the death of his wife and son and the loss of all earthly possessions for the sake of Christ. And as he left the island on a ship, he was looking back. And the main thing that made him sad was not what he had lost. It was what the people had lost. He was sad and his heart broke for the salvation of the people who were trying to kill him. He was sad because they were left without a witness to Christ. His heart broke for those who were trying to kill him. And who does that remind you of? John Payton knew Jesus and his sufferings. And he's in glory now with Jesus. He's knowing Jesus face to face in glory. Just like he knew Jesus and his sufferings when he was on earth. Don't you want that? Don't you want to suffer with Jesus and know him better? In his autobiography, he details how often his life was in danger. How many times he was almost killed. And in one experience, he climbed into a tree late in the evening to hide from those who were trying to kill him. And he wrote this. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of the savages. Yet I sat there among the branches, safe in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw to me and speak more soothingly to my soul than when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. If thus thrown back on your own soul, alone, all alone, in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend that will not fail you then? Have you that friend? If you're in Christ, you have that friend. And he will never fail you. Run to him. Suffer with him. And be glorified with him. And if you don't have such a friend, if you don't know Christ, then run to Jesus. Know him. Know him in this book. He's on every page. Turn from your tension and your trouble to trust him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus entered into this creation to raise us up to glory. We thank you that he will never leave us or forsake us, that you hold us by the hand. We ask that you would help us uh, to obey, help us to repent, help us to love Jesus. 
his name from me.